Hello, friends. It's Robert Stelic. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Blue Planet Show, where I interview foil athletes, designers, and thought leaders. You can watch this show right here on YouTube or listen to it on your favorite podcast app. Today's interview is with Ken Winner, the designer at Duotone, wing designer extraordinaire. And as always, I ask questions not just about equipment and technique, but also try to find out more about his background, what inspires him, and how he got into water sports. So Ken was really open in this interview, shared a lot of information about wing design, even showed his computer screen where he designs wings. So that's at the very end of the interview, so you don't want to miss that part. It's really cool if you're into wing design and want to know more about the materials and the construction, the design, and Ken's philosophy. This is a really good show for all that kind of information. During this interview, I'm going to play a little bit of footage of Alan Cadiz wing foiling in Kailua. I got some drone footage of him, which was after this interview, but he's using the 2023 Duotone unit wing, 4.5 meter wing. I'll play some of that in the background. Thank you so much for your time, Ken, and for sharing all the detailed information. So without further ado, here is Ken Winner. Okay, good morning, Ken. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm pretty good. All right. It's a little bit of a rainy and windy day here on Oahu. How's the weather on Maui? Same. Same. Yeah. Yep. So have you had super stormy winds the last few days? It's been crazy windy here. Yeah, it's been gusting 35, 40, 45 at times. Do you actually go out in those kind of conditions or do you wait? Yeah, less yeah. Windy days? yeah it's, it's pretty fun. Yeah, so you've been doing what? You, what do you do on days like that? You go on a downwinder, or you just go? go yeah, I only do downwinders with my wife nowadays. That's her favorite thing. Otherwise, I launch from a friend's house over on Stable Road, and Peter Slate actually lives on Stable Road, and so we launch there, go out, race around a bit, test different wings, hydrofoils. Nice. What kind of equipment were you on in, on those super windy days? Thing from a two to a four. Sometimes we go out pretty overpowered just because we have something we want to try and we don't have many choices. Some days we just have to go and do what we can with what we have. We do a lot of prototyping in the four and five meter size. We do a fair amount in the three meter size and then smaller and bigger. We also prototype and test quite a bit, but maybe not as intensely. Nice. Okay, but before we get more into all the equipment and stuff like that, I wanted to get talk a little bit about your background. So tell us a little bit about starting in the beginning, like wh how where you grew up and how you got into water sports and all that kind of stuff. I was born a long time ago, 1955, so there's a lot of history there. You don't want to hear it all. Grew up near Annapolis, Maryland. Did a fair amount of recreational cruising type sailing. My dad owned boats. Built a lot of stuff when I was a kid. Owned a couple boats when I was a teenager, started windsurfing in 75. How extensive do you want this to be? Started windsurfing in 75, won the world championship in 77. We won again in 80. In 81, we had the, right there on Oahu where you are, we had the World Cup, the Pan Am World Cup, which I won. Um, actually, yeah, don't worry about making it short. Like we, we got time. So just actually, like, how did you get into windsurfing? What was your first experience with that? Or what were you doing anything other like surfing or water sports before windsurfing? Yeah, no, I've never actually surfed. As I said, I grew up sailing. I, when I was a teenager, maybe 17 or 16, I bought a 
a old, old wooden boat, a little wooden boat, a Bahamas cat boat, uh, fixed it up so it was saleable and sailed that around a bit. <clears throat> Kept it at a friend's house. I also bought a shark catamaran, sailed that a bit. So I was into sailing and I, I saw an ad for a windsurfer and thought that would be a good thing for me to try. So I bought a used windsurfer. Um, I also about the same time bought a hang glider. So I taught myself to hang glide. And, but I really enjoyed the windsurfing more. So sold everything else and just focused on windsurfing. So that you were around 20 years old? Yeah, about 20. Yeah. Did you have any like formal education or did you go like straight into yeah, windsurfing? Yeah, it's funny. I was going to University of Maryland when I started windsurfing. And <clears throat> I might have stuck with that, but I started windsurfing racing and winning races and thinking, oh, I can always go to college. I can spend a little time windsurfing and, and then when I'm ready to quit, I can go back to school. But I never did actually go back to school. I just <laughs> kept windsurfing for the next forever. <laughs> so, but ba so basically you're self-taught like all the knowledge you have on with computers and aerodynamics or all that is basically from experience and self-taught kind of thing or yeah i do a lot of reading i remember in sometime in the early 80s barry spanier i think got a book the title was the aerohydrodynamics of sailing and i i heard him make a comment about it so i got it and i read it from cover to cover several times and really absorbed, I think, the lessons of that. And uh, did a lot of other reading after that. But that was sort of my foundation for learning about uh, the technical side of sailing. Nowadays, of course, it's super easy to get a lot of information online, really good information. So unless you're pursuing a career like attorney or doctor or degreed engineer, or PhD scientist, you don't need formal education as much as you used to. If you need it at all, I don't know. But yeah, I think as long as you're a lifelong learner, you can pretty much teach yourself almost anything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a lot of things for sure. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do some screen sharing here from the Windsurfing Hall of Fame. There's a little bit of information about you online here. So in the so you started windsurfing in 1975. That's this was the day, days when they the booms were still made out of wood and so on, right? Talk a little bit about your fir right. first wind, windsurfing setup. I bought a used board for three hundred bucks and went out, taught myself to use it, and I just became hooked. Like most people, did it every chance I had. And at first, all I focused on was trying to improve my skills. That was one hundred percent of my effort. But then, gradually over time, I got more interested in improving the equipment. So over time. I did some things like built my own boards and built my own rigs, masts, boom. Yeah, and um, you start you started winning a lot of races. So you were very focused on the racing side of windsurfing, or also I guess freestyle as well, right? Yeah, so I won the freestyle world two or three times, and that was back when it was a much simpler affair than it is now. Of course, the guys who do freestyle nowadays circles around all of us who did freestyle back then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they loop circles around. But you, you got to start somewhere in every sport. And so that, that's a picture of Robbie and Jürgen Hünscheid and me at the Pan, Am, the Pan Am Cup, actually, which was right there on Oahu over in Kailua. Yeah. And you were able to beat Robbie, I guess, 
at that point still and you have several world world titles right in windsurf racing yeah robbie and i were rivals to some extent but he was younger and when he got to be when he achieved his full adult strength he was extremely hard i started when i was 20 he started when he was about nine and and uh, it's no surprise that he's dominated the sport so much for so many years he's an amazing athlete and a really great guy good entrepreneur he's got a great business um, and we're still rivals. It's been a good, it's been a good forty some years. And then you started build. You said you started building your own boards and making smaller and smaller boards, right? Yeah. So I, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, I, I built a, a nine foot board. Uh, actually, prior to that, I had a board shaped for me and, and glassed, and that was a board. I would say I basically invented carving jibes because. Everybody had square tail boards back then. I had a round tail board, which allowed me to carve through my jives instead of skid through them. And basically, from that point onward, I focused a lot on trying to improve my equipment. I, <laughs> you're showing a picture of the transatlantic windsurf race, which was a, a pretty funny boondoggle. That was in about 98, I think. But this has got to be pretty boring for anybody watching. People are interested in what's happening now. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I don't think anybody's going to find this boring at all. But just, yeah. And then I guess you, yeah, tell us a little bit about how you got into the wing, wing design, or were you designing windsurfing sails for Duotom before kites or like how, or, and then. Yeah, just tell okay, us a little so, bit about how you got yeah, into so that. Yeah, so I windsurfed intensely for 23 years. I, I guess in 97, I think I won the U.S. racing championships. And then just shortly after that, I tried kiting for the first time. And basically, after I tried kiting for the first time, I, I sold all my windsurfing gear and got straight into kiting. My my first kite experience was with Don Montague right off Stable Road on Maui. He was out kiting. I was out windsurfing, and I told him I wanted to try that. So he handed me his control bar, and he leashed his board to my ankle, and he told me how to steer the kite. And I so I kited back and forth down to Kanaha for the next half hour. And so that was my, that's how I got hooked on kiting. And so from the very so, first yeah. session, you were able to stay upwind and everything. And no, I didn't stay upwind. I ended up down at Kanaha. So right. starting at camp one, ending up at Kanaha. Oh, okay. And so, yeah. And one, not long after that, I spent a week on Maui kiting every day. And, and then a few months after that, I did some, I did a how to kiteboard video because there were no schools. Hardly anybody knew how to learn, so I did some videos. The Nash guys, Robbie was saying he needed some how to kite videos, so I took the opportunity to do that. We sold about 30,000 videos, and then, of course, schools came along and the internet came along, so that was, there's, you don't need that kind of stuff anymore. It's all online. Yeah. Oh, so you had a, like a VHS tape on how to kite and sold it like through magazines and stuff like that with mail, I mail order? Used- I used the Nash distributor network to the dealer network to sell boxes of videos to dealers who would then retail them to customers. And I had a website so I could retail videos directly to, to the customers. 
And we actually did a total of three how-to videos over a couple of years' time. And then I helped convince Boards & More, which is the parent company of Duotone and Fanatic, to get into kite boarding, kite, making kites. And so that was about the year 2000. And we tried to hire people to do the job of designing kites, but there were so few kite designers at the time that I ended up taking it on. So I had to do a crash course in learning how to design a kite. Weeks and weeks in China, working 16 hours a day, learning how to use computer-aided design software, CAD software, and then pumping up existing kites and trying to figure out the geometry and trying to figure out how to do that. Ultimately, it worked. So we ended up with a decent kite and started growing the company from that point. Okay. So Boards and More at that time, they had brand was Fanatic and or were there brands that they were running? I'm just going to say Boards and More was the parent company of the parent company that I work for now is we produce Duotone kites and Fanatic windsurfing gear and kite surfing and sup surfing gear and sup foiling gear. Boards and More is the company I've been working for the last 20 years. And right now, what is your official role at Duotone? I know I just wanted to say I've been waiting such a long time to get you on the show because you're always so busy. You said you have to come up with a whole new line of wings and kites and everything. So you were too busy to meet with me. But yeah, tell me a little bit about like your job, like your role and how you were able to make time today to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great question. I, I tend to overcommit and try to do more things than I can reasonably do. So a few years ago, I was designing kites, but I also decided to start designing hydrofoils, and that turned into a lot of work. And then I started designing wings, and that turned into even more work. So I was able to push the foil design work off on some very capable guys that we have in Mauritius and in Germany. And then more recently, I've been able to push the kite design work off on Sky Solbach. Now, Sky's been working with me for 18 years. We've both been learning a lot about kite design. And in the last year, so I've been helping him master the software that we use for kite design. And so now he's doing the kite design. And I would say that he's for sure one of the most experienced and capable kite designers in the world, even though he hasn't been the lead on kite design until recently. But he is now, and he's doing a great job. He's making some really great improvements. So he's having like a good teacher, right? <laughs> I hope so. Having so now, I'm just focused on wings. And so that like your job basically at Duotone right now is wing designer. Yeah, I'm focused on wing design now, and we have two main wing models. The unit has handles. The slick has a boom, and the unit is more focused on wave riding and downwinding. The slick is more free ride and freestyle. Unit has a little bit more wingspan, slick has a little less wingspan. Okay, so before we go into the current gear, let's go back to when you first started winging and like how you came up with the wing. I interviewed Mark Rappahorst and Alan Cadiz as well on the show and they both talked about how you guys used to go out downwinding together with the stand-up paddle foil boards and uh, and then one one day you showed up with the wing so can you talk a little bit about that like how you first came up with the wing and the inflatable wing design and so yeah on. i was trying to downwind hydrofoil with these guys and i wasn't 
doing it that well. That wasn't having great success, and I was getting a sore shoulder, so I was trying to figure out how could I do downwind hydrofoiling and not get a sore shoulder. And I, by chance, I saw a video of Flash Austin with his homemade handheld wing that he was using on a hydrofoil at Kanaha. And I thought eight years before I had designed some inflatable handheld wings for supping, not with a hydrofoil, but just for sup. And so I thought, I wonder if something like that would work. It fits my skill set because I do inflatable adult toys. And so I, I went home, got on the computer, designed a crude, another crude handheld inflatable wing. So those and designs I, are, you sent me an email with some pictures. Is that from that time when you designed your first wings? Yeah, that, that blue and black wing was my first effort to do a handheld inflatable wing. My idea was to use it on a sup board and that was back in 2010. Sky and oh, I so, tried it. So this one was the one, the original one that you made for, for basically wind, windsurfing on, or on a regular windsurf board. Well, a sup board, yeah. Sup board. board. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and so it and, was very similar to what we have today, actually, you know? Yeah, yeah it has some similarities. Yeah. And then um, you would hold one hand, we go here and one hand here. Yeah, that's how it was at first. Okay. And uh, I tried another one a month or two later, and Sky and I tr didn't, we tried and we didn't really think it was that much fun. Another guy who designs for us took the idea and made an inflatable windsurfing rig. We, mm. we call it the iRig, which was pretty nice for kids, very low impact. So I remember that. So in that, picture of six wings, you can see the first two in 2010, 2011. And then in 2018, I tried something. I just, yeah, just very quickly threw something together. I modified an existing Neo design and like a Neo is one of our kites and sent that off to the factory. And then when I took it to the beach and stepped on the board and sailed away, it popped up. I popped up on the foil immediately and sailed right out to the reef. Turning around, I fell and I had trouble getting going again, but basically I considered that a success. And I figured that would allow me to do downwinder without stressing my shoulders. I kept building prototypes after that. Sky went, this was June of 2018. Sky went to a dealer meeting and, and demonstrated it for everybody, everybody there and nobody was interested. <laughs> so, and then we took it to the AWSI show in August and nobody was interested. But then finally in November, people started getting interested. I got our CE, Phil Eberle, he's a, he used to be a snowboarder on the German national team, so he's a really good athlete. And he had thought it looked too complicated and difficult, but then when he tried it, he discovered that it's not too complicated and difficult and maybe we, sh we can make some of these and people will buy them. So at that point, we decided we were gonna go into production with wings and i think i think some other brands decided at that point it might be an interesting concept of your of your wife and then you also sent me this little video so she was the first you said probably the first woman to a wing foil is that correct yes yeah, sky's wife christine and julie both tried it out i think right around christmas time of 2018 and then after that julie got very interested in it. And I took her out at Kihei quite a few times. And I think this was her first time 
on the North Shore. <laughs> she was a little excited by the size of the swell. So nowadays, she, she really enjoys doing downwinders from Malika to the harbor, and she can do it in about 35 minutes if she's in a hurry, and it's her favorite sport. Cool. Yeah, and then this was your first wing design, the foil wing, and I actually got one of those. I've been I was waiting for a long time, and then finally got the wing, and I think it was a three meter the first one I got, and it was yeah, it was super cool because same as you were, we were trying to do the foil downwind runs, and really mm-hmm. kind of it's really hard actually. But talk a little bit about this first wing design, and because it had a boom and no strut, and then it had full battens and so on, so. Talk a little bit about the swing. Your first yeah, time. starting from scratch, we had no idea. I had no idea really what to do with it. We, you know, we tried different dihedral angles and different dihedral patterns, and I put battens in it because that reduces the fluttering by quite a bit. Nowadays, we don't have the long battens because we found other ways to reduce the flutter. Some of us have a lot of brands go ahead and continue making wings with a lot of flutter, but I don't really care for that. The boom, I made my first few wings with handles, as you saw in the photo, and I really hated the handles. Then I went to a kind of a strap-on rigid handle, and then after that I thought, well, why should I have a strut and a boom or strut and a handle when I can just have this one boom or long tube and potentially save money and hassle? So that was the reasoning there. But it turns out the strut is really nice for stabilizing draft. And so we went back to using a strut sometime later. Yeah, like I know the that first wing, it, it was it, it did that tick-tocking thing, right? When you held it by the front handle, it, it didn't really behave very well. Just luffing yeah. behind you, it didn't. Yeah. So was that, I guess, part of the reason for that was because it didn't have that strut to stabilize it? Yeah, I think the strut... It, kind of acts like a rudder in some respects, helps stabilize them. It's really hard to know what's going to be important to people when you're starting with something new. One of the one of the things I have to do is I have to, I can't just pay attention to the things I like to do. I have to pay attention to what other people like to do. At first, to me, the idea of holding the wing by the front handle, I just never did it. I would always hold it by the boom. So right. I never really noticed that instability when I was using it myself. Yeah, basically, yeah, that's what, how, when I used it on a wave, I would just hold the front of the boom and it worked fine. But, but then, yeah, I guess some of the other wings were really stable, just holding it in the front handle and you'd be able to surf with it, just holding the front handle, which then I guess, so, yeah. And so and, and then, another thing that's kind of interesting is if you want a wing that will be pretty stable when you're just flying it on the leash, we experimented with that a bit. And the thing we found is that if I let the air out of my wing and let it get a little bit floppy, take it down to three or four PSI, it will fly on the leash really stable. But then if I pump it back up to eight PSI and I have a really tight top canopy, which is something I like, then it's no longer really stable. On the leash. So far, we kind of have to make the choice. Do we want it? We want our wing more floppy and therefore it'll fly on a leash or do we want our wing more stable in which it's less stable on the leash but it's more stable otherwise and so basically so that's basically why you have those two different wings one is the unit for 
more that's more i guess more stable being on <clears throat> supplying by itself and then the unit is more has more of a profile and is that kind of the thought behind well, we go for a lot of canopy tension on both models of wings we're not going to compromise on canopy tension because it gives it helps give lift to the wing when it's just laughing and, and it it improves power when you're pumping it improves depower and stability when you're overpowered. So we're not going to compromise on canopy tent. But the difference, one of the differences between the slick and the unit is the unit has more sweep in the leading edge, and that helps improve the stability while it's luffing if you're surfing a wave and holding it by the front handle. The fact that it has more sweep than the slick makes it a little more stable in that respect than the slick. But then the, the downside is you have more wingspan, so it's easier to catch a wingtip. We are saying like the fr leading edge in the front is a little bit more like this versus that kind of thing? Or what, what do you mean by sweep? Sweep is, the, you know how some airplanes like a fighter jet will have wings that are swept back? And some wings like a sailplane will have wings that are not swept back. Mm -hmm. Sweep is that back angle in the leading edge. Understood, okay. And dihedral is the up angle in the leading edge. So we've done quite a bit with different dihedral patterns. And some things I thought would be better weren't. So I thought a progressive dihedral would be more stable than a linear dihedral. And a linear dihedral is actually more stable. So the new unit has a very linear dihedral shape. And uh, another, another thing that's kind of interesting is some wings have very little dihedral, and the advantage of that is when the wing is lying flat on the water, it's less likely to flip over. The disadvantage of that is it's hard to have uh, a wing with a deep canopy and with a lot of canopy tension when you have little or no dihedral. So again, we're giving up the fact that our wings, when they're lying belly down on the water are more likely to flip over than somebody else's might. But on the other hand, we have the ability to put in more depth while maintaining really good canopy tension because we have more dihedral. So would you say there's a downside to having more canopy tension? Like to, to me, it seems like the more tension you have, the, the better the profile works. But I guess like sometimes on a wave or whatever, when you're luffing it, it has a little bit more drag, right? Is that, or like, what's your experience you, with the tension? The canopy tension gives you less drag. If you have, if more canopy tension gives you less drag when you're luffing, but the wing is more stable while luffing if it has a bit less canopy tension. If I let some air pressure out of my wing and make it have less canopy tension, it'll flutter more and that makes it draggier and Sad to say, it makes it more stable. Yeah, because so basically, when it doesn't have a lot of tension, it can just completely flatten out and just flutter flat. Versus a yeah, the tension has it still has that profile. Yeah, so the draggiest thing you can have is a wing that flaps and flutters and lumps, mm. um, but that drag imparts a certain amount of stability. I see. So this is one of those things where you, it's hard. It's hard to get. It's hard to get everything you want. There's always trade-offs. Okay, so maybe talk a little bit about 
things you've tried early on that were that ended up on the trash heap and versus like things that yeah. I guess like the full battens you said in the beginning you tried them or use them to reduce the flutter. But I yeah. remember those battens used to break really easily too in the waves, right? So the, they're yeah. in battens. Yeah, so early on, I never really even imagined I would be using a wing in the waves, which is why I didn't mind putting battens in. They don't, they're not really compatible with waves. I did make a three-strap wing early on. My, my, my fourth wing in 2000, fifth wing in 2018 was a three-strap wing. And it was perceptibly heavier, so I didn't make any more three strut wings for a while. Yeah. So, by, sorry, by three struts, you mean three inflatable struts like this kind of? Yeah, so blue one, yeah. the 3.0E from July of 2018. Yeah. yeah, I tried that, and it was not a great wing and a little on the heavy side. So I decided I was going to try to stick with just one strut. And then actually went to a boom after that for the simplicity and the low cost and so forth. So the three is something I abandoned early on, but it does have potential advantages. So we've been doing more work with that. F1 has a nice three-strut wing. It has its pros and cons, but there are people who like it. And one of the reasons is the fact that you have the strut takes away the corner, the, the back corner at the tip of a wing and that's the place people drag most often when they're trying to get going so, so getting rid um, of that. Well, i'm sorry share that again so what you're saying like this corner is what drags in the water when you're trying to get foiling right yeah and so a certain arrangement of three strut a certain three strut geometry will get rid of that corner. So I think F1 actually has like a patent, a patent or a patent pending for that third strut, but it looks like you were the first one to develop that. So how does that work? They, they, if it came to contesting it with us, I don't think they could win, but I don't think either us or them are interested in having a fight. So I don't think it'll be a problem for us. So basically when I know Duotone is also has, a, I think you, I know you have a patent for the hand, the rigid handles on the unit. Are there any other patents that you're, you've gotten or applied for? And yeah, and the question is like, why didn't you apply for a patent for the inflatable wings in the first place? Or did you? Because I think in part, you have to do it pretty quickly and it can't really be in the public domain. So these wings that I made in 2010, 2011, from what I understand is they were out there in the public domain and they were, they happened many years before. And so just trying to patent an inflatable wing, I don't think that was an option, but we've tried to, we've applied for patents on various aspects of the inflatable wing design. As things related to the dihedral and boom and trying to think what can I mention what can I not there's some things we do that we don't even talk about because some people aren't aware and we don't want to give them ideas yeah you don't want to give away your secret sauce so I understand not too, not too soon yeah <laughs> yeah <clears throat> okay so actually I had a question from a friend my friend Steve he was asking have you or about Basically, on windsurf sails, where with the camber inducer and stuff, they have the luft tube to improve the laminar flow on the bottom side yeah, of the wing. Sure. Have you yeah. tried that? Have you tried playing with that? And or what are yeah, your thoughts on that? Yeah, that, that's a popular topic. It came up in, in connection with kite design years ago, and I think 
when I was picking up my the first kite that I actually owned from Don Montague, he was talking about that very idea and doing it in connection with kites. And Don Montague has done an amazing amount of work along those lines in connection with kites and wings. If you were to see the PDFs he's put together on all of the things he's tried, you would be astonished. Don would be a really interesting guy for you to talk to on this. Don Montague, okay. Yeah. Yeah, he was the kite designer for Nash 25 years ago or 23 years ago. He's moved on to a lot of really interesting things. But he was talking about it then. He worked with it then. And it's never really worked for kites for a variety of reasons. There's weight. There's the tendency for water to get in and weigh down the kite. Complexity, cost, and the actual benefit is hard to find. I've also tried to do elliptical leading edges in kites and wings where I have two leading edges side by side. Kind of two uh, bladders yeah. next to each other kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Trying yeah. to thin out the shape of the wing and make it stiffer. And that, that's been really hard to make it work. There are people who try this stuff and they, somebody's probably going to succeed at some point someday, but so far it hasn't. One of the problems with double surface on a wing is that the lower surface tends to keep the flow attached. And that attached flow sucks the second surface down and actually tends to suck the whole wing down. So we spent a lot of time making sure our wings always lift. If you're luffing the wing, it lifts. If, it, if you get hit by a gust, it lifts. Every All the time our wings are lifting. If you add that second surface, boom, your lift goes away. The flow remains attached on the bottom of the wing, passes the leading edge, sucks the lower surface down and sucks the whole wing down with it. And this is something I've actually experimented with and tried and observed. So I'm not just speculating here. Interesting. Again, I'm not saying it'll never work, but it's not a slam dunk. It's not an obvious, easy thing to do. And the benefits aren't obvious either. So <clears throat> yeah, and it's more weight, it's more cost. So we, with wings in particular, we have to worry about weight. Windsurfers don't worry about weight nearly as much as we do currently. You have to hold it, to. hold that thing up in in your hand. And light wind, especially, then the weight really makes a difference. It does, yeah, for sure. What about rigid wings? I know people have been making rigid wings for on the ice and stuff like that, but and have you played around with that or have you tested rigid yeah. wings? Yeah. Yeah, and I thought early on I'd like to have a rigid wing that opened up like an umbrella. And I, I actually have tried some rigid and hybrid prototype. But the problem you run into there is you lose one of the greatest attractions of wings, inflatable wings, which is the simplicity and the fact that you just blow them up and go. And when you have rigid components, elements, you make them more complex, harder to rig up. They're less robust because something like a carbon fiber tube can break pretty easily, especially in the waves. And I question whether a lot of people would want to give up the simplicity and the robustness of an inflatable wing in order to get a little bit more speed or a little bit higher jump or whatever the rigid structure might give you. So uh, that's not a, a real priority for me right now. I, I mean, in fact, I would rather be working on stuff that makes it easier for kids and people who aren't fanatical wingers people who want to get into it, but aren't going to be doing it every day. I would, I'm interested in making it better for families. 
rather than right. better for Kailini. <laughs> yeah, but obviously week, you're also very interested in going fast and testing. You know, Ankit has told me that you guys go out and brace each other and see what's faster and test equipment. And that's what he told me about the Mike's Lab foil that he let you know you let him try your foil and he got one himself and i just got one recently so those are yeah just having a fast foil makes a big difference that alone right but going fast up to a point it, about the mic's lab what happened was during the pandemic we had a shortage of fanatic hydrofoils we weren't getting the latest stuff we weren't even able to get anything out of china for a while and my wife is pretty into getting the latest stuff. So she ordered a Mike's Lab hydrofoil and mm-hmm. she got it and she actually had a hard time with it. So I started using it. So I used it a fair amount, but she went to an 1100 Mike's Lab and that worked really well for her. Then she moved to an 800, which worked well for her. Then she went to a 600 and that worked well for her. And now she's now she, now she, well, I don't know, she's in the 540 to 800 range nowadays, depending on what she wants to do. And so through all that, I've been using her hydrofoils as well, but I also use, Fanatic has some new stuff that I also use. Peter Slate, who I sail with a lot, is using Fanatic foils, and he's going really fast with those. He's hard to keep up with. Mm-hmm. And Alan, of course, is very hard to keep up with, too. Yeah, and, and I, I guess I, I now... should... Sorry, I, I should say, I should say when we're talking about going fast and racing, I should say that I don't try to go fast or race because I think that, well, I, I'm not sure how to put this. I think that racing with slow equipment is actually more interesting than racing with fast equipment. In the old days of windsurfing, we raced with really slow boards. It didn't matter that we were going slow because the important thing was trying to use the wind and the, the waves and whatever we found out there to go a little bit faster or to take a slightly shorter course than the next person. And so I don't think of speed as a prerequisite for getting on the water and racing. I think just getting on the water and racing with the stuff you have is pretty interesting. Yeah, that's, I guess, the beauty of one design racing where everybody uses the same equipment and it's not an arms race and it's more about this, your skill and st- strategy and so on, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think of it as the most social form of winging on the water because you're actually doing something with other people. And it's a very sort of a responsive thing where you do one thing and somebody will do another thing in response. So you're, there's interaction that you don't have pretty much any other time, except when you're wanting people to stay out of your way on the wave, which is a a different kind of interaction. But getting back to the winging that Alan or Peter and I do, if we're racing around side by side, trying to go faster, what the main thing I'm doing is I'm trying to assess the performance of the wing. I'm trying to judge the power delivery. I'm trying to judge, is the power delivery consistent? If I hit a lull, is it easy to deal with a gust? Is it difficult to deal with a gust? When a gust hits, do I accelerate or do I just slow down because there's so much drag? And then we'll go upwind and we'll go downwind. And if we're going downwind, we can judge whether we can go deeper with one wing rather than another. And this, this all translates into performance that even someone who's not racing is is going to appreciate. And you can notice subtle differences 
between wings when you're side by side with somebody of equal ability that you can't notice if you're just out there cruising by yourself. So that, that, I think that's a real valuable thing for us. But the other thing we do is we've got Finn and Jeffrey Spencer out there on our wings. They test every prototype that comes in. They write a little report on every wing that comes in. They go out, they loop them and spin them and race around with them, do everything that anybody does with them and you know, evaluate them in very thorough in a very thorough manner, I think. Yeah, I think originally they used to ride for, what's it called? They used to ride for Slingshot. Slingshot, yeah. So how long have they been riding for Duotone? Well, the last few months. Okay. Yeah, they're amazing wingers. Talk a little bit about the R&D process. I guess it's like you can't really make too many changes at once yet, right? You have to change one one variable at a time. And then like how many prototypes go into, like how many prototypes do you have to make to come up with next year's wing kind of thing? I'm just curious about yeah. that. So for the 2022 four meter unit, I I design, I name every prototype with a letter from the alphabet. So I got down to Q on that one. I'm not sure how many that's maybe 20 or so. Close to and 20, each 20. one is one that you actually made. Is it just to do they all make it to the to be actually samples or those are all actual samples that you made? That's a good question. I might start on a wing design and try five different variations on my computer, but they'll all be the same letter. They might be, they might oh, okay. be 4B-1 so, or 4B-2. And I'll, okay. I'll look at all those and then I'll decide which one I want to try in person. And I'll send the, I'll generate patterns, send the patterns to the factory. The factory will ship it out a week later or five days later, and then we'll test it. But I can go through dozens and dozens of prototypes before we finalize a line like the unit from size two to size 6.5, which is 10 mm -hmm. sizes. And we do build and test every size before we put anything into production. Yeah, but I guess on Maui, like basically the four meter is your, like that's the one you start with. And then once you have a good four meter, then you start working on the mm -hmm. other sizes. Is that kind of how you do it? Or Usually I'll do a four or a five in a lot of iterations. I'll also do some sixes. I'll also do threes. I did quite a few threes on the latest slick design because it can be hard to get a three meter working really well. So we made six or seven threes before we felt like we were in the right ballpark with, with the slick. Yeah, because you can't really use the same design and just make it bigger and smaller because obviously the bigger wings, the, one of the issues is that they have too much wingspan. So you have to make them kind of lower aspect and then, but the smaller wings, it's not, the wingspan isn't so much of an issue. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like the differences between yeah. from your biggest wing to your smallest wing in the same lineup or is that? Yeah, that's exactly right. The wingspan, the aspect ratio can be a, a little bit higher in the smaller wing. With the bigger wings, we haven't really gone over seven and we haven't adjusted the aspect ratio that much up to there. But in the future, we'll probably have a seven and an eight with a little bit lower aspect ratio. Another thing you can't scale exactly is pretty much everything you can't scale exactly. You have to make adjustments with everything. So if you take a five meter that you like and you want to go smaller, you actually, as a percentage, have to go bigger with the diameter of the leading edge and the strut. Because if, if you were to scale those down exactly, 
to a, like a three meter, the leading edge wouldn't be big enough in diameter to get the stiffness you want. And, yeah, and then like it goes, a small wing, you really want a stiff leading edge because otherwise when you're winging and gusty wind, it'll just bend. Yeah, and that yeah, let's talk yeah. a little bit about that, the leading edge diameter, like the what you learned about that from all your designing and where what are your thoughts on that? And also the different materials. I know you're doing the unit D labs with the Alula fabric and stuff like that. And can you make the diameter thinner with the different fabric if you have more pressure and so on? Just go talk a little bit about that. Yeah, at first, of course, I was trying a lot of different diameters to see what seemed to work okay at my weight. And one of one of the issues we have is people of all different weights are doing the sport, and we have to optimize around the average weight of the average rider. So why are you showing that? Oh, I just wanted to bring up some of the wings and the different. I was going to show the Alula wings and stuff like that okay but, sorry yeah <laughs> sorry to distract you there yeah so leading edge diameter is a huge topic and most of us who test are in the 140 to 190 weight range so we tend to optimize for that weight range and a four meter wing has a diameter of about 10 inches at the center and at eight PSI or eight and a half, nine PSI, that seems to, to be stiff enough for most people. We've tried going smaller diameter when we go to our Alula wings or D-Lab wings are made out of Alula right now. And Alula is great because it's very light, it's very stiff. And you would think that since it's so stiff, you could go smaller in diameter. But after making quite a few prototypes with smaller leading edge, we see both advantages and disadvantages. So you can have a little less drag if you're going upwind or if you're in a lot of wind, you get less drag with a smaller leading edge. But if you lose a little bit of air pressure, then you have a softer leading edge. And the smaller the leading edge, the more sensitive it is to small losses in air pressure. So with our D-Lab wings, our Lula wings, we've decided to just keep the diameter about the same. And anybody that wants a little bit softer leading edge can let a little air out. And then bigger riders, the 200 pounders or 210 pound riders will have something that's fully stiff enough to handle their weight. That's one of the trade-offs we've made with leading edge diameter. Yeah, so basically you found that you can't really, even though the Alula can handle more pressure, you can't really reduce the, the leading edge diameter by much. So or not we, really we can, it's just when we do it, we find that we're not happy with the trade-offs. And so we're leaning toward being conservative. We won't, we don't want, we don't want people to have unreasonable, we don't want their expectations to be need. Yeah, we're getting the best all-around performance by keeping the leading edge diameter pretty substantial. Recently, for example, we made two identical slick prototypes, one with standard leading edge diameter, one with maybe a not quite a 2% drop, but a, about a two centimeter reduction from about 10 inches to a little over nine inches. And the smaller leading edge diameter had advantages as we expected. If we were going upwind in a lot of wind, the guy on the smaller leading edge 
had a, had an advantage. But overall, it had a little less power, a little less grunt, and if we lost a little bit of air pressure, it had a little less stiffness, and we felt like those were big enough problems to keep us away from that. Okay. So, Can you talk uh, a little? Another, Sorry, another thing we did related to leading edge stiffness is we put a 230-gram Dacron in the center, that white panel, those white panels in the center are a heavier, stiffer Dacron. So we put those in a place where there's a lot of stress on the leading edge, and both in terms of point loading where the strut attaches and that leading edge handle attaches and the leash attaches. And it's also a point where there's a lot of bending load. So that helps make our leading edge stiffer. I know a lot of brands will double up on their cloth there, and which we did at one point, but we really prefer the single layer of 230 gram Dacron. It's very robust. Interesting. Can you explain like how, why you recommend different pressures for depending on the size of the wing? Like I see here the 2.0, you're recommending 12 PSI and then for the 5.5, 7.5 and kind of in between. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the load on the seams, first I should say the closing seam of a leading edge has the most load on it of all the seams. It has twice the load on it in its seam. The inner segment seams are the ones between panels of cloth. So we do a lot of testing to try and maximize the strength of our closing seam. But one thing about closing seams is the load on the closing seam is related to it's proportional to the pressure times the diameter. So if you have a small diameter, you can have higher pressure without overloading the closing seam. But if you have a big diameter, you have to have lower pressure to avoid overloading the closing seam. And I think every, everybody understands this in the business. They are all recommending higher pressure for small wings and lower pressure for big wings. And it's all related to how much load the closing seam can handle without breaking. I, I see. Okay. Do you... Our standard Dacron construction can handle 15 or 18 PSI in a four meter size before it breaks. And I've, I've done test tubes. I do a lot of test tubes where we test the strength of seams and cloth. I've done test tubes where I've taken it up to 25 PSI in the standard diameter for a four meter before it breaks. Uh, so we do actually quite a bit of lab testing and bench testing on things like seam strength and cloth strength. So the difference between the unit and the D-Lab unit is basically just the material of the leading edge and the strut. Is that correct? Otherwise, Yeah, the... that's correct. Another difference is that the, the materials stretch a little differently and they require different seam construction. So I can't use the same patterns for the D-Lab that I use for the unit. I have to customize the, the patterns for the D-Lab wings, make adjustments to allow for a different, not just different stretch, but also different shrinkage because different seam construction will take up more cloth. One seam construction might take up X amount and the other seam construction will take up 1.5 X amount. So I have to make those adjustments in the patterns. And then 
I've noticed, let's talk a little bit about the flutter and, and wings. I noticed it looks like the unit has like this little tiny batten thing versus the D-Lab doesn't have that. Is that, what's the reason for that? Well, now the D-Lab has it, they just didn't put it in the graphic. Oh, okay. <laughs> they both have it. But that's one thing I noticed, like the first generation wings, they would get really baggy quickly or after a few months of using them, they would get all bagged out and, and you would lose a lot of performance and there would be a lot of flutter, in the, in, especially in the trailing edge. So how did you, do you eliminate that or how are you able to get away without battens in the trailing edge and avoid yeah, having a flood yeah. and stuff like that? About a year and a half ago, we decided we were going to attack that problem and we built some wings with different materials, stronger ripstop materials for the canopy. And we sent them out to team riders in schools around the world and got feedback on how durable the different materials were. and so the material we use in the canopy, the white material in the canopy of the, no, not that one. That, so that one has standard kite ripstop, which is 50 gram ripstop, which is uh, pretty good stuff, especially if you get this, the panel alignments right and you get the warp orientation. But then the wing you're showing now, the 2023 D-Lab, which I think is coming out tomorrow. Oh, wow. That has are what we're calling mod three for modulus three ripstop material in the canopy. So the white material in that canopy has three times the bias stretch resistance of the standard kite style ripstop. And that makes it not only more resistant to things like rips when you drop it on your hydrofoil, but really makes it more durable and a higher performance material. It makes our standard unit feel more like a D-Lab unit because it's more solid. And when you're pumping it, you get a better response. It's not a spongy response. It's a, it's a more rigid response. When you hit a gust, the draft is really super stable. So all around, it, it's a big improvement. There's a small weight penalty, of course, but we we did some testing where we built three nearly identical six-meter wings. And we put different amounts of this mod three material in the canopy of each one. So they would they differed in weight by a bit. And we found that the canopy with the most, with the largest amount of this material in it was far and away the best performer. So we decided to put in all of our wings for 2023. Okay. <clears throat> I think we're the first to actually come up with a wing dedicated canopy material. So that, so basically that combats that bagginess after, after using it for a while, it doesn't stretch as much basically. Exactly. Yeah. I just noticed that, okay. Yeah. So this is the traditional canopy, the mod three, you just have less stretch in, especially in the diagonal direction, right? Yes, exactly. So I just noticed that for the unit, you recommend the D-Lab wings, you recommend a lower pressure than the regular unit wings. Why is that? You get more stiffness for the pressure. Whatever your given pressure is, the D-Lab gives you more stiffness. But the thing about Alula is it's incredibly strong and stiff. It's incredibly strong everywhere except where you put a hole in it. So... If we have to sew these things together, so they have thousands of holes in them. And we do a lot of reinforcement on the seams with materials that are not Alula. 
our testing shows us that these are the numbers we should be using for inflation to be safe. And so even though you might pump a five meter to seven instead of eight, it's going to be stiffer at seven than a Jackron wing at eight. Okay. So you, you just said, so tomorrow you're going to release the new, the 2023 wings. I think on your website, this is still your 2022 model, right? So what are no, the... that, that D-Lab you're pointing at is the 2020. Oh, I'm wrong. It's the 2022. You're right. It's got the windows for 2022. So what has changed? I think I've seen Alan Cadiz with some wings that have two windows here. Is that like one of the ways you can tell or? Yeah. So the new units have windows that are more like the current slick the 2022 slick has four windows not just two of them and mm -hmm. that improved our that improves the visibility quite a bit so let's talk a little bit about the seam orientation because it seems like the seams have a little bit more they don't stretch as much as the fabric right so is that is that you're trying to use the seams to add more basically more tension to the canopy mm -hmm. is that what your thought well, is on that? What I'm doing there is I'm trying with the wing design in general, I'm trying to get more tension from tip to tip fanwise across the canopy. And in order to deal with that tension, I'm or I'm making the thread orientation run tip to tip. So it's more about getting the thread orientation of the cloth aligned with the loads that I'm trying to put in the cloth. And that's actually evolved a bit. Those seam angles have changed for 2023. And I, I'm surprised there's no photo anywhere of the 2023s. They've been out for a while now. But the Duotone Sports website doesn't have the new wings. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, so talk a little bit about the changes that you did make in the wings from 22 to 23. I, I guess the windows, the seams, but what else has changed? Yeah, cloth is a huge really big thing because it makes the, the wings last longer and up to now the leading edge materials have lasted longer than the canopy materials and you really want everything to break all at once ideally so we changed the windows we changed the canopy cloth we increased the depth and the power of the wing a bit the profile depth is greater so we are getting more power but the canopy cloth itself also improves the top end. So we have more wind range overall. We, we refined the tip angles. Tip angles, tip twist has a lot of influence on wing performance. And so we've been, we've gone through a lot of prototypes trying to find the tip angles that are best. So I'd say we have an improvement in overall power delivery in part because we've got better control over our tip twist. I'm trying to think what else we've done. Is I know I'm forgetting something. So the, this wing that Alan Kiddis is using is probably the, the 23, right? That's probably a 2023 prototype. Right. But that's one of our prototypes where we were trying different canopy materials. That orange material is one of the materials we we tested for use production and we we decided not to use it but it's a very good material we might use it in the future it's possible okay interesting <clears throat> cool that's cool that you're able to talk about that it's going to be released shortly
for wing design, what's your philosophy and what are you trying to accomplish when you're designing a wing? I guess for the slick. I really like a wing that delivers power as very consistently across the wind range. And I've ridden a lot of wings. I've ridden wings that don't do that. Most wings in the past haven't done that. And we're getting better and better at keeping the power on at all times. I like a wing that's always lifting. A lot of people don't have that yet. I like a wing with good canopy tension for low flutter, good pumping. Never want, I never really want to have to move my hands because I'm in the old days of windsurfing and the old days of winging. You hit a gust, you have to move your hand back. In windsurfing, you had to move your hand back on the boom and winging, you used to have to move your hand back to another handle or something, which is one of the reasons I liked having it boom <clears throat> at first because I could just slide my hand back. I didn't have to let go and grab another handle. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, the wings, our wings are so stable that I never really have to move my hands back or forward when a gust or a lull hits. They're always in the right place. Uh, so that's really important to me, and I think it's important to everyone. When I'm thinking about the sport in general and how to how to make the sport appealing to more people, I think about the fact that we get families doing winging. We get my the guy who actually runs our wing brand, a guy named Klaus in Germany, lives just off the Baltic Sea near Kiel. He has a seven-year-old son who started winging when he was five. And yeah, I think that's awesome. I love the idea of families being able to do the sport. So I don't ever want to lose focus on making it easy, making it accessible, making it affordable. We're a high-end brand, so we don't tend to go for the bargain basement type wings, but we do want to make quality wings at a reasonable price and I don't want to lose sight. Yeah. And like in terms of price, like obviously the Lula wing is much more expensive, the material like, and like what, how much of a performance advantage do you actually get out of that material? And is it only like someone noticed that, is it just for high performance wing foiling or do you think the average user, it's a big advantage for them to go with the Lula fabric? Yeah, I mean, anybody that can afford it will benefit from it. It's just a question of, do you want to spend the money and where are your priorities? And <clears throat> do you have three kids you have to worry about until you can't spend money on the Lula wing? My wife likes them because they're light and she doesn't need the stiffness, but she likes the low weight. So she always wants to be on an Lula wing hmm. if possible. Bigger riders like the, someone who weighs 200 pounds is going to really benefit from the stiffness or somebody who likes to jump will benefit from the stiffness. Most people, it's totally a matter of whether they want to spend the money or not. You, there's always a benefit. And the bigger the wing, the greater the benefit. So a six meter gives you more benefit in a Lula than a three five in a Lula. For sure. So let's talk a little bit about the equipment that you use personally. What's your go-to wing like on Maui? I know you have, which wing do you use the most? And We, we use fours and fives here a lot. Three, three fives, fours and fives a lot. Seabreeze days, Seabreeze day when it's blowing six, eight knots, I can be on a seven or eight pretty easily. And you know, of course, if it's blowing like it has last week, I can easily be on a two. And do you prefer the unit or the, the slick wing for your personal use? I really like booms a lot because I can, 
it's easier to locate my harness lines precisely and I can put my hands anywhere and I can fly one-handed when I say I'm getting from my from a sitting position to a kneeling position I can one hand the boom and that makes it easier one hand but I used to hate handle wings but we have, our handles are good enough that I like the units also. So what I, it's pretty much whatever I'm working on is what I'm riding. So lately, I've been working on slicks mostly, and I've been riding slicks mostly. But in the coming few months, I'll be working on units entirely, and I'll be riding units. So what changes have you made to the slick wing for 2023? What have been? So we did a lot of the things on the new slick that we did on the unit. So we went to the Mod 3 canopy cloth. Um, we kept the four windows because we like that. We have gone with more canopy depth and more power. We fine-tuned the tip twist. And we had some reflex, quite a bit of reflex in the strut of the 2022 slick. With the new canopy cloth, First, I should point out that the thing the reflex did was it made it so that the back of the canopy didn't bag out so much when you get a gust or if you're out in high wind. So the reflex in the strut improved the top end performance of the slick by a lot. However, with our new canopy cloth, we don't have that bagginess in the cloth. So we were able to tone down the reflex by quite a bit. It's just a maybe three degrees now of reflex in the strut. I should point out also that the wider tips of the slick make it so that the slick benefits more from a little bit of reflex than the unit. The unit has narrower tips and it works different. What else on the slick? We've changed the shape of the strut a little bit and yeah, overall it's a liftier, smoother, Lift your wing, smoother wing. The power development is actually the smoothest of any wing I've tried. So when we're sailing along through gusts and walls, we feel the gusts less with the slick than we have with any other wing we've ever tried. Okay. And then what about your board and your foils? Like what are you go what's your go-to equipment on that? Yeah. So I don't use small boards. I did a little bit a while ago, but I don't jump. So I don't really need a small board. I've been using 75 liter five foot boards quite a bit for the last year or two. And lately I've been on a 5.4 that's 24 wide and we're trending narrower. Some of us are trending narrower just because if you're on a small hydrofoil, if you have a little bit longer, narrower board, you can pop up on the foil more easily. But a longer board isn't necessarily good for waves. So anybody who's on heavily into waves isn't going to be on a longer board. I see but there's probably, about, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say the tail shape. I mean, I know people used to have all the kick tails and all that, but it seems like with the smaller, faster foils, high aspect foils, you need, it's almost like you don't want to pop up at a steep angle. You want to keep that board as flat as possible on the takeoff. So do you still use that kick tail or is it just a flat tail in your board? <clears throat> yeah, I haven't used kick tail in quite a while. And I think those were mostly valuable in the bigger boards because it was hard to get the nose up to get some angle of attack on the hydrofoil so that you would lift. And of course, with a small board, getting the, sinking the tail and getting the nose up is easy. So I think you don't really need any kick for a small board. The boards I use, my 
mast is about six or seven inches from the tail of the board. So there's just not much back there to keep it from kicking up in the nose. And then how long is your mass? What mass length do you like? I've been using it in the 90 to 95 range a lot. And I've used longer, but there's a lot of shallow water around here. So yeah, I was going to ask, what's the disadvantage? So a lot of times it's, it's just like you don't want to hit the reef, right? <laughs> yeah. But the longer longer mass are either, they're, to keep them stiff, they have to be a bit heavier and maybe a little thicker, which not necessarily attractive. And then there's, you always have to look at what the tide's doing. Where I ride, I don't like to go out if there's less than a foot of water, a foot above mean low water. And if it's two feet, that's better. And sometimes I'll just go to the harbor if it's a super low tide time of day and I need to test something, I'll, I might go to the harbor because at least I know they can get away from the beach without hitting the bottom. I'm curious because you've done a lot of testing. Like when you get scratches on your foil from like hitting the reef a few times, all my foils are pretty scratched up. How much does it affect the performance like in your experience? Hugely. Hugely. Yeah, yeah it's terrible. I feel it. I've had, I won't say bad luck, but I have had collisions with things in the water that have destroyed my foils. And you really notice, yeah, you notice everything. If you're, if you're sailing with somebody else, you notice because you're going slower all of a sudden. If you're do not. You, do you repair, do you try to repair scratches in your foils or is there a way oh, to yeah. fix it? Like yeah. how do you repair scratches on the bottom of the foil? I usually try to keep the scratching to a minimum and right. I'll, I'll uh, just use a little tiny bit of two-part epoxy to fill the scratch, just just enough to fill it and then sand it smooth. I want to get some epoxy paint so that I can do a proper paint and sand job on some foils, but I haven't got around to that yet. You can't get it shipped here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that would be like a two-part paint, epoxy paint kind of thing? Yeah, there's a stuff called Durapox out of, I think, Australia that America's Cup campaigns use for their hydrofoils and boat hauls. Huh. That's supposed to be really good. But you have to ship it by boat probably or something like that, yeah? yeah. I think so, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and then what, we talked a little bit about the Mike's Lab foils, but like what foils do you use the most and what sizes and so on? Yeah, so we have a, Fanatic has a really nice 590 it's, I don't think it's in the shops yet. It's a 590 front wing that I really like. They, we have a 725, we've, we've got an 850, we've got you know, a lot of different sizes up to, I guess, 2000 still. And on the web I really don't know it's on the website. Okay, you just have a look real quick, but okay so that's pretty small for you yeah 590 is a pretty small foil size for you you're not probably not as light as alan cadiz or someone like that right yeah alan and i use a mike slab 540 sometimes my wife uses it too and so alan and i can sail around both being on 540s but i outweigh him by 60 pounds or 50 pounds so it's funny how that that can work for most days around here Something like a 590 is a really nice size for me. Lighter wind days, the 725 is good. It's a very powerful wing for its size. I was looking at the, so are they the Duotone foils or the Fanatic foils? Did you say you Those are oh. the ones you're showing. The, there's, those are kite hydrofoils. Oh, Duotone's okay. kite hydrofoils. Okay. And they're not the, 
they're not the latest stuff. I don't know if we have the latest stuff on the website because it's been quite the challenge to get the new stuff out of Asia. It's basically not in, available yet, basically. Yeah, I think so. Uh, okay, so... Probably by spring on the mainland. Okay, and that, but the, so the foil that five... 590 that you're saying you're using is I assume that's a pretty high aspect, pretty thin, fast foil. Is that kind of what you how you yeah, would describe yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. High it's probably 10 to 1 aspect ratio and uh, designed to be fast. We have a CFD guy, a computational fluid dynamics guy in Germany who does work for a lot of projects like America's Cup campaigns. And he's designed some profiles for us for our mast and for our wings that we think are really very competitive. I, Peter rides his stuff all the time and he's extremely hard to keep up with. So I have no doubt that it's fast. It's pretty amazing how much the foils have improved over the last couple or last three years or so coming from the early gold foils. What foils did you start on? I was designing our kite hydrofoils and our windsurf hydrofoils. And we had some decent kite and windsurf hydrofoils. And then when I started making them bigger, they weren't very good at first. So I started on some real crap foils, very difficult to ride hydrofoils. Then over time, they got better and it became pretty easy to ride over the period of some months and maybe a year. Okay. So I just I mean, want some to... Of the, a lot of those hydrofoils you just showed on the website are things that I designed oh. a couple of years ago. Yeah, so actually, let's talk a little bit about the challenges that during the pandemic, the whole supply chain issues and logistics, shipping issues and things like that and delays and the demand. Obviously, during the pandemic, when everybody was like staying, couldn't people couldn't go to work, so they had more free time. It seemed like that's when winging just took off. Like I know here on Oahu, it was like you just couldn't we couldn't get enough stuff. There was like more way more demand than supply. And then now yeah. it seems like where it's almost like the op opposite way where there's everything's back in stock and people are back in at work and not buying as much. I don't know. Just can you talk a little bit about that and your experience with that? You pretty much said it all, it, except for the fact that when the pandemic hit, Maui was paradise. There was no traffic. There was no people on the beaches. It was an amazing time in some respects. Sad in many respects, but not for everyone, not equally for everyone. My workload didn't diminish at all. I had a lot of design work to do and a lot of testing to do. And so life didn't change for me. It did change for a lot of, obviously, for a lot of people. And yeah, the supply problems were an issue. We couldn't get prototypes for a time for a short time, but the people in the factories, they were very aggressive about getting back to work. And I think we were lucky that they were able to do that. Okay, Ken, sorry about that. I My computer just shut down all of a sudden. I think I had maybe a power surge or something like that, but we're back on. And uh, while we're trying to get back on, you, you did a little screen share of your, that you used to design, design your wing. So if you're willing to share some of that's pretty cool stuff, we'd love to see that, of course. So yeah, you can see your screen now, yes. Tell us about what you're doing there. So this is a um, unit D-Lab 3.5. And I don't, usually, I don't always have handles on the model, but I'm putting a handle on the model now. And so I can put another handle on there. 
make it about 300 millimeters long. And so there you have the wing with the leading edge handle and that's too far back. Yeah. So what do you shoot for with the handle locations? Like when you're winging, do you want your hands to be right in the middle of those rigid handles or is it something where you more towards the front, more towards the back? Like how do you determine <clears throat> where to put these handles? Yeah, we, I get feedback from a variety of people who weigh different amounts and ride in different ways and just try to position them so that Nobody ever complains about running out of handle when they are in, you know, yep. I guess that's most, if, if you look at these little dots that I'm highlighting, running my mm -hmm. cursor around, those represent places I found where my hands work pretty well. Mm -hmm. That scale, those dots scale with every wing so that if it's a 3.5, you've got them. And if you've got a 6.5, you've got them. So going back to the three five, this is the this is the model that I developed to create the three point five meter D lab unit. And okay. you can see it looks a lot like the actual pictures if you ever find a picture of it. Yeah, nice. Can you talk a little bit about what you were saying earlier about the reflex? Can you explain what you mean by reflex and changing the reflex depending on the like because of the changed fabrics and so on? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, that we would want to look at as slightly different wing or on this one maybe just talk about that you have that the luff pocket that orange luff pocket in the front and then in the back the wing is connected directly to the bladder or the strut and like what's the reasoning behind that oh so sorry yeah um, yes on so this is a, a model of a flick and this is a wing that has some reflex in the strut. You can see how it, it bends up in the back. And that's just something that helps maintain tension in the belly of the canopy in the, this area of the canopy in a gust. Instead of getting a big baggy bit of cloth back here that moves the center of effort back, we've managed to keep tension in this cloth that tends to stretch a lot anyway. We managed to keep tension in there and so it handles gusts better. And okay. as for whether to have a, an infill panel here or not, with the slick, we have to have the boom attaching to the front of the strut. So the front of the strut has to be down here. It can't be way up there. So we have to have a strut that attaches to the canopy by means of an infill panel. And the reason we have the infill panel there at all is to help maintain control over the shape of the canopy in the center. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like having the strut there without actually having the strut there. With the unit, we didn't really want the handles to be at steep angles to each other. We, we couldn't have the strut angled way up to the canopy and coming back down. So we made the infill panel longer. And why do you have that little bend in the strut, like where it goes up a little bit and then back down again? Is there, what's the reason for that? Instead of just having all, go all the way across straight? Yeah, so we've actually, especially lately, we've experimented a lot with the ergonomics 
and we find that a little bit of angle, six to 11, maybe 12 degrees of angle, somewhere in that range between the two handles is really comfortable for the hands. Hmm. So on the unit, that's something we want to maintain. We're experimenting with quite a few different ways of arranging the handles to try and get like a really more intuitive and natural and comfortable feel when you're fighting. Okay. And then have you played around with trying to make the center of gravity a little bit lower? Like I've like wings that have the strut almost a little bit lower where it feels more stable with having a lower center of gravity. Yeah, there's something to be said for that. An airplane with a low center of gravity and high dihedral will be inherently more stable. And yeah, there's something to be said for that. But I've also noticed that with the handle essentially being a little closer to the strut, there are advantages to that too. Yeah, and we're, we kind of go back and forth on that. We'll, uh, I think I think the ergonomics of it is an extremely important issue, and we we put a lot of attention on that. Okay, can you talk a little bit about the back of the lead of the strut? It's pretty fat. It's, it seems like you you're going thicker than most other brands I've seen. What's the reason for that? Why do you keep it thick all the way to the back? The I guess we want it to be stiff. We don't want we don't want the wings to be too floppy. This helps maintain leech tension if the strut is stiff. That helps keep the canopy shape that we want and going thinner doesn't part of it is perception because I don't know this is a six five and as a percentage the strut is a little thinner on the six five because you gain stiffness so quickly as you go bigger in diameter that we don't need the strut on a six five to have the same thickness as a percentage as the strut on the 3.5. Um, yeah, but I've noticed that some wings, when you jump or something, you really put a lot of pull on your backhand. This part of the strut, like right above the backhand, is where it can bend a little bit. So that needs to be pretty right. strong, actually. Yeah, yeah, we want that to be stiff and strong. Yeah. And then the other part where the leading edge tends to flex where the strut connect, connects to the leading edge on some wings, I've noticed. So, And then you said, basically, you, you try to combat that with different Dacron material as well, right in the, right in the front of the. Yeah. On our Dacron wings. Yeah. We have a heavier cloth in these two panels. And what about on top? I noticed there's like a different, the black panel on top. Is that also a different material that, that part? So yeah, yeah the, this gray panel is it's Dacron and we put it there to prevent. Yeah. With kites, we had a, a tendency for valves to rub against the canopy and wear on the canopy. Mm. And we have this one pump hose here that could wear on the canopy. So we put Dacron there to prevent that happening. I see. Yeah, it's a detail. Yeah. Amazing how, yeah, how perfect it looks just on the computer like that. It must have taken quite a while to get to that point where you have, yeah. Yeah, in, in four and a half years, I've gone through a lot of wings 
for sure. And then all the seams on the front leading edge, it seems, do you need that many seams? Or I guess that that way you just get a nicer, smoother curve than if you did less seams? Or what's the reasoning behind having that many seams? Yeah, for a time, I thought having fewer seams was nice because it could help keep the cost down. Less work at the factory keeps the cost down and makes it more affordable for the customer. But there are certain performance advantages to having more seams. And I'm not, I don't think I want to say why. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing, sharing all that information and you're already sharing probably more, more than you should, <laughs> I'm thinking, but awesome stuff. And I'm sure people are going to love getting all that information directly from you, the designer. One, um, thing we, one thing we do is we've been keeping the closing seam on the bottom of the leading edge and some brands are rolling it back behind the leading edge. There there are pros and cons with that also. There's some clear advantages to keeping it at the bottom of the leading edge and drag is a disadvantage. So there's a little extra drag from this, but there are other advantages that have to do with wing shaping and aerodynamics that cause us to leave it where it is. Interesting. It's not an accident that it's there. Yeah. What about bladders? I know in the early generations of wings, there was a lot of issues with the bladder, the, especially the strut bladder, the, where it connects to the, the leading edge, where, you know, if it folds a little bit or twists a little bit, it would pop. Yeah. So that, yeah. that happened a lot of the early ozone wings and stuff. But how do you keep that strut bladder in place so it doesn't, I know, and then there were some wings that had strings attached to the bladders and so on. So how do you combat the, yeah. the twisting and so on? Yeah, so one thing is we double up the thickness of the bladder at the front and at the back. And we pull it in with two strings, a string at the top and a string at the bottom. But the bladder is forced to fill the spaces that need to be filled. And yeah, we had problems at first because we were using bigger diameter struts than we ever used with kites and bigger diameter leading edges than we ever used with kites. So there were some challenges challenges to overcome there. Fortunately, I think pretty solid in that area now. So I, I just noticed on the slick wing, the center strut is actually sticking out of the top of the wing. Like basically the, instead of the the wing just being attached to the top of it, it's actually go, going down to the center of it. It's interesting. What's your thought? What were your thoughts behind well, that? That's just the model. I'm, I modeled the strut to have a little bit of reflex, but in reality, the canopy attaches to the top of the strut. It's just, oh. the, yeah. Yeah, and the amount of reflex you see there isn't, it's not really representative of reality because the way the cloth stretches and the way the seams shrink the cloth a little bit and whatnot, you know, for any number of reasons, it turns out a little different in reality. But in reality, the canopy is attached to the top of the strut. Yeah, and then when the wing is under load or in a gust, the wing tips will twist a little bit from from the pressure, and then the and you said that's you designed the amount of twist that that it has and so on. So can you talk a little bit about that, like what you learned about the wing tips and the importance of the different angles and so on? Yeah, right now wings don't work the way windsurfing sails do. Windsurfing sails actually do twist at the tip. Mm-hmm. And they look great. Our wings don't do that. When it gets loaded up, the twist happens here. Like the canopy opens halfway out or two thirds of the way out from the the center. And that actually doesn't, the way these 
inflatable tips work, they don't actually twist. They might bend in a little towards ah. the center. So when I talk about tip twist, I'm talking about something that's really static. So if you're looking at the wing from the side, you might, this isn't actually representative of reality, but you might build in a certain amount of angle in the tip. And a lot of that angle comes out because of the way the canopy pulls on the leading edge, it derotates the tip of the the tip of the kite or the tip of the wing. So you might build the wing with exaggerated tip twist because by the time it gets all the canopy tension on it, that gets pulled down to to like no twist at all. And that's a very static sort of thing. It doesn't it doesn't change in a desirable way while you're riding the way it will change with a windsurfing sail while you're riding. That's because your leading edge, too, is it's equally stiff in, I shouldn't say equally stiff in all directions, but it doesn't have the huge stiffness in the leech direction that a windsurfing sail has and the softness in the angle of attack direction that a windsurfing sail has. So the way it, the way it works is really different from what we would like it to work and something we hope to overcome someday. That's actually something I wanted to ask you too. In windsurfing sails, you have usually have a leech line that you can adjust, like you can adjust the tension in the trailing edge of that line. And have you played around with that? Have you tested that? Is that something that could make sense for wings or not really? Yeah, I don't think many windsurfing sails have that nowadays. Maybe they do. I haven't looked at one lately. But no, I, I put a little cup. I, I tension the trailing edge with a little bit of cupping so that it keeps flutter down, but I, I don't want a leech line really. Yeah. I've, what we've noticed is like when you have a kind of an older wing that's a little bit stretched out and if you hold it up against a newer wing, a lot of times the wing tips will just be a little bit wider because I guess the material stretches and then the wing tips are wider than when on a brand new wing. Have you noticed that? That, that particular observation I haven't personally made. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks so much for going into all this detail. I really appreciate that. I know we've been talking for a long time. So do you have anything that you want to leave people with? Like any comments on wing foiling or the community and so on? I'm just really pleased to, to be part of it and enjoying it every day. And I've been doing this basically for 47 years and I plan to keep at it for a bit longer. And I really enjoy meeting all the different people I meet in this sport. And, uh, and it's been a pleasure talking with you about it. Thanks so much, Ken. I mean, you, and th thank you for bringing this sport to, into the world, really the whole inflatable wing. You definitely have a big role in, in bringing it to the market and just making it better and better. And the amount of progression is, is just it's mind-blowing how quickly wing foiling has gone from just a brand new sport to a super high performance sport i'm amazed every day yeah it seems like that whole progression and wind windsurfing it probably took 20 years to get to the point where wing foiling is now i guess it's amazing yeah 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 and there's still a lot more to come i'm sure it's just like a, we're still at the very beginning of it so yeah awesome yeah Okay. Hey, Robert, it's been a pleasure talking. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ken. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Aloha. Bye. Take care. Okay. So I hope you enjoyed this interview with Ken Winner. Please remember to give it a thumbs up if you like the show to the Blue Planet YouTube channel and so on. 
I really appreciate everyone that's still watching or listening to the very end. You're the ones I'm making this show for, the hardcore foilers that can't get enough information. And today's interview with all that information on the wings, I think was really special. I think it's just going to drive the sport forward. For me personally, I'm super interested in this kind of stuff and I know other people are as well. So this show gives me the opportunity to speak to people like Ken and find out more about what they're up to, which I think there's a lot of people out there that are just as interested in that as I am. So thank you for sticking around and, uh, We'll see you next year. Happy holidays and a happy new year. I'll see you in 2023 with more Blue Planet shows. All right. Thanks for watching. Aloha and see you on the water.